Inkstuds, studs and my guest today is Jesse Reckla. Jesse's new book is his first graphic novel I'm gonna say I feel like that's kind of a bloated term maybe um, coach tag for Fantagraphics and the reason I say kind of bloated term because you also um, reading through your stuff you've probably done 50 to 60 mini comics at that point by this point you know what's sad is that I recently like took stock of all that and there are 71 uh, publications I made before quitting Wow. Um, From 1988 to 2012. Now, last year, short run, we were just talking about short run before we started, and I remember you saying this is my last mini comic, I think. Yeah, it was. And I, I couldn't find it because my stuff was a mess. <laughs> that's that's um, not a mini comic. <laughs> of course you couldn't find it. <laughs> but why this distinct decision, like, you're done with mini comics. Well, you got to make the decision, right? I don't yeah. know. That's what a decision is. You can, can you make an indistinct decision? <laughs> um, but uh, I, you know, the life changes just kind of creep up on you, and at some point, you realize you, it's time to admit it. I just had to admit that I wasn't self-publishing anymore. I guess I said what I had to say in 25 years, and uh, I have pretty. Uh, uh, bad health lately so something I guess making the decision I didn't want to come off as a liar so I got to stick to it now and it prevents me from self-publishing which is good because it's it's a very it's a labor of love it's it's very time-consuming it's very hard on your body you know I mean not just the, the stapling and folding and I'm not kidding you know that <laughs> I, I got so many blisters all over my body from making mini comics but then you know paying for shows and flying out there and all the travel and hauling this stuff around because of course you're not going to be able to afford to ship it out there or get a, a valet or anything you know so you find yourself schlepping 50 pounds of paper around just so you can you know pay for your drinks at the hotel bar <laughs> and, and you're still out the money for everything else and yeah 
it's it's better to force myself not to do it. And you also stopped doing slow wave. Um, I did. Yeah. Was that that was a couple of years ago? Or was that last year? Same time, 2012. Yeah, my arthritis just got too bad. Too it was just too painful to try to keep up with uh, that level of stress that's involved with weekly deadlines and going to a dozen shows a year. I just had to. I'm old. I had to relax. <laughs> so has this changed your approach in what you make artistically? Yeah, I'm focusing more on longer stuff now. I think I'm giving myself the uh, the the permission to make more ambitious works. Um, I feel like I learned a lot from doing a weekly strip, and I didn't have much more to learn from it. And I learned a lot from putting my own books together and book design and dealing with distributors and shows and all that. And I would rather be an author and let publishers handle all that at this point. Now, for those that don't know Slow Wave, it was people would send in their dreams and then you'd do a four-panel comic strip. Yeah. Yeah, that, yeah, that nice little Procrustean uh, comic strip format. Um, and mini comics, I mean, your topics and subjects and that things in mini comics would, would range quite heavily. Um, and I think maybe wondering about the distinction with Couch Tag is that it seems like you really dove into you're doing a bigger book and kind of having work that fills up that book. Yeah. If that makes sense. Like the ideas focus. need the space to work. Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, that is not just in the book itself, but in the process of making the book. Uh, you know, I find as someone who's trying to work with longer narratives now that you can't just force it to come out every week that maybe sometimes for months at a time I won't have any good ideas or I'll just hate the book and I'll have to set it aside and you know so just giving yourself a couple years to finish something I think is is necessary and natural to um, to capture that organic flow into a book uh, rather than you know because I've done diary comics and I've done weekly comics and you can try to put those into some kind of continuous narrative but it the book resists that you know yeah. the the book is its own thing and it if you don't let the book or whatever whatever the work of art is if you don't let it flow on its own then i, I think it's it's crippled it's it's hampered by your desires and not by the book's desires did you notice um when you're doing 10,000 things to do um which for folks that don't know that, it was a comic strip you were posting on Flickr uh, that was a daily, like, four-panel comics journal. Um, I love that you point out it was on Flick Flickr, too. It was totally a <laughs> Flickr comic. There was this brief <laughs> Flickr of time when when uh, that site uh, just was, was the only photo site um, that was accessible to a, a large number of people. I, you know, I'm sure Tumblr was around, but people uh, over the age of... Um, 12 probably couldn't use it then so <laughs> well it, i remember like going through the flick and be like oh there's a new five new ones and then going like through each page on Flickr how dedicated you are the, the 2008s that was uh <laughs> those were the days um but what i was wondering about yeah. with that is um with couch tag you have a purposeful story 
you have these ideas and conclusions and do you notice anything coming out of that when you're doing um, a year-long autobio thing or did it really feel like you kind of get lost in it uh, with the year-long diary totally lost in it I mean I could read that now and it would be fresh to me um, but with couch tag you know I've, I've poured over that material and I've edited it and tried to make it you know connect and flow uh, this is kind of silly but I often tell my students in in writing you know everything should have a purpose in your story and my rule of thumb for that is just try to make sure it appears at least twice so I would go to my <laughs> book and write down every theme and every uh, incident and make make sure I at least you know had a bookend there like you know if I mention it once it's got to come up again later and that sort of thing like makes you fill your entire head with the book. Uh, you know, I would draw diagrams of what the narrative and plot structure look like. Um, I, I just had to. It's like falling in love. You know, this this book, this idea, this, this message uh, is a very living, organic thing to me when I'm working on a book. Um, now, when we talked before, 2008. Um, you'd mentioned, and I can't quite remember the specifics of working, starting work in this book. Yeah. Um, and I'm wondering, because I mean, it just came out now, five years, um, doing that year-long autobio mm -hmm. um, experiment, how that informed working mm -hmm. on um, memoir. Yeah. Uh you know, I don't think it really did. I, I would say the 10,000 Things to Do is more similar to Slow Wave than it is to Couch Tag. Um, I know a lot of people write and talk about a continuum of autobiography. and You've got diaries and you've got Romana Clef and memoir and what's the connection to all of them. And it seems arbitrary to me. I mean, everything you work on is personal to some degree or another. We all know that. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't see really a big connection between a memoir or a diary. Tell me about um, structuring Couch Tag then. Like, you originally had an idea of covering certain matters or certain situations you've gone through in your life. Um, did you have the complex structure in mind that developed out of it? At some point, not at the beginning. Yeah, I... Um, I started doing some autobiographical writing more seriously around uh, the early 2000s. Before that, I'd just done little one-off strips, um, a lot of them for other people's anthologies, like uh, Not My Small Diary by Delane uh, Derry Green, who is a great editor. Um, I think I'd done some for some Carrie McNinch anthologies, too. People that I was inspired by for that they were doing autobio comics and I, I'd seen them around forever of course I'd been reading Joe Mad and Julie Doucet since I was a teenager um, and I wasn't sure how that was gonna work for me and honestly I think most of them were pretty bad and uneven but I got that idea to sort of have a a false structure around it telling the story of the cats and then kinda of sneaking in details of the family sort of a um, bait and switch mm -hmm. And that worked. I mean, I've, I was mentioning this to Kevin Hazenga and Dan Zetwalk at a show. They were asking me about it. And I, I said, um, you know, 
this was like the first time I did something that I thought was great and other people said, hey, that's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> and I asked them if, if, if it was like that for them and they were like, oh, no, everything we do is great. But of course, <laughs> of course they were kidding. <laughs> uh, but it's nice to get that attention from my esteemed peers. I got some great letters from friends like David Lasky and uh, Adrian Tomina. And then it seemed like something I should continue doing. And I thought, well, if the first one is based around cats, I guess the other ones all have to be based around something. Um, so did you, that first uh, chapter, that had that gone out as a mini? Yeah. Then folks had seen that. Okay. Yeah. And uh, it got picked up by the Best American Comics, which was another big bonus for me. I mean, that was quite a thrill to be in printed on a page right next to Robert Crumb. Mm -hmm. And then I got an agent out of that and I just had a lot of attention and it, it, yeah, it just sort of became its own thing, honestly. As I worked on Couch Tag over those eight years from 2005 to 2013, especially near the end, it, it began to feel like it was some sort of tumor or like a, a conjoined twin. And the twin wanted to live and not me. The twin kept taking all my organs and my life away from me. <laughs> and it just seemed like it was something I, I had to kill it. I had to put it to bed. I had to end that book before it ended me. It seems like it gets progressively personal as you go through the book. That was intentional. You know, I don't yeah. want to shock people right at the beginning. Uh, I don't mean this as a diss at all, but I, I would never put a book together like... Um, like Fun Home, where she starts off with the big wow to sort of impress you, I guess, into why you should read it. And I, I kind of wanted the big wow to be at the end in a more standard narrative structure, you know. So uh, all the details about the family abuse and the mental illness, I wanted to sort of sneak in piece by piece, put one in, you know, chapter two, and then put the book end in chapter four. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to. I wanted to set it up, and I, I like a row of dominoes. I wanted it to seem like it was very clean and easy, and that's that's I think why the conceits sort of worked. It's like this is a story about cats. It's very simple and easy. You understand it, and then you read it, and you're like, well, I don't really understand. It. <laughs> and that's the effect I wanted. What makes these uh, chapter concepts um, important to you? Like the cats, the card games, the alphabet, and there's one more I'm forgetting. Uh, the toys. Yes, there we go. Yes, yes. Um, what do you see those as like important to you and to your memory um, as signifiers? I don't know. I don't think I should say. I, I should let some uh, high school students figure it out when they have to write an essay. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, I, I wrote down a big list of things I might use as a conceit, and uh, there weren't that many. And some of them just naturally seemed to fit. It was, again, the kind of thing of the book sort of directing what direction I should do. Um, but I, I think, you know, some people have mentioned these are simple comforts to a child, toys and games and cats. But there are other simple comforts to children, and I just those didn't seem to fit. Now, the book itself um you mentioned kind of needing to kill it and get it put away um part of the book i mean it, you're very raw and 
honest in it in a lot of aspects and i'm wondering were you really prepared for that level of honesty of like what you've gone through in your life you gotta be yeah yeah i had to make that commitment it's sort of a punk rock thing i think where you're just like all right i'm gonna do it <laughs> here i go <laughs> Um, just I'm a, I don't know how to skate, and I'm just gonna jump on the skateboard and <laughs> ride down this hill and see what happens. Uh, I one one of my biggest influences is Chester Brown, and I had heard some stories about when he first put out some of his uh, more embarrassing autobiographical stuff, like uh, "I Never Liked You" and "The Playboy," mm-hmm. and uh, suddenly he you know he was getting sort of made fun of in the comics journal and by other cartoonists about, you know, like when he demonstrated how he masturbates. And so, you know, Pete Bag draws a picture of Stinky doing the Chester. Chester. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I feel like I read an interview with Chester Brown where he was just mortified by the kind of uh, chutzpah people would have to come up to him at a show and, and just ask him these blatant questions about his personal life. And I just thought, I have to be ready for that. I have to be like, it's like a performance to be in public now. I have to be, yeah, I don't know. Now, when you finished your book, you gave it to your family to read? <laughs> uh, no, not no? this one. No. Okay. I figured if they wanted to read it, they could go to the store and buy it. Okay, because there's the author's mother and the author's father. Oh, right. Quotes on I, the back. That's from the... Uh, the first chapter okay. that I printed as a mini comic and I sent that to each of them and they told me those quotes in, in person and I just thought it was funny to put on the back of the book. Adds an element of realism. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, both of my parents are quite delusional, so putting out a book like this, they might not even be able to tell if it's fiction or real. Do you find that kind of informs for you of what you're trying to piece together? Yeah. Just kind of reacting to how you see your parents processing things? Uh, I guess, sure. It's all, it's all combined together. One big clusterfuck of memoir and grief and abuse and trauma. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> they were very weird people to grow up with. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, there's part of me that's like, I'm trying to process like, kind of, the ease of being able to laugh about it, but it's still um, challenging work that you've kind of had to process. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I've always loved dark humor, especially um, things that involve family and social structures, like Fassbender, or um, I can't remember the, the American director, but he did happiness, Todd Salons. Yeah. You know, that kind of stuff, I just eat it up. It's hilarious to me. And I was talking to my therapist once about it, and she was aghast. She's like, why do you force yourself to watch that stuff? And I'm like, I'm not forcing myself. This this makes me feel normal. This makes me feel like somebody else went through something like this. And one of the hardest things about trauma is that you're alienated. That, you know, I mean, when back in the day when everybody slapped their kids and spanked them, it was okay because you'd go talk about it with your friends. But, you know, later in the 80s and 90s, it's not okay to physically abuse your children. And and so then 
the real trauma there, I think, for me, is is it's shameful. It, it's a it's a hurtful thing that you can't share with anyone else, and uh, it's a thing you want to try and hide. You don't want people to know that you're abnormal. <laughs> so so I don't know. Maybe putting this book out there is a healing process. It's kind of a blame the victim thing in a way. A bit, yeah. It's the victim blaming him or herself. <laughs> Self blame. Um, is there a catharsis in there for you? You know, I don't think catharsis is the word. I think a catharsis happens more rapidly than eight years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> eight years of working on something feels more like a, like a graduate degree. <laughs> right? Well, you do have a master's, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I know how painful that can be. <laughs> it's uh, It got to be a real drag there at the end, especially because the economy kind of fell apart. I mentioned that I had an agent and I was possibly, um, you know, getting some attention from big publishers, but then that kind of fell apart and then the economy took a dump and it hasn't really recovered. So I never got the, you know, publisher support that I needed to finish it. So that was hard to keep working and to try to, you know, those pages, some of those pages took me 16 hours and then you figure there's a hundred of those. That's a lot of hours to sneak in while you're also working full time. When you're working on the book, um, did it go linearly, like doing it chapter by chapter by chapter? I mean, obviously the Cats one was first, but the other ones, was there a linearness to it or? Nah. You... No way. <laughs> yeah. I, I do not have a linear brain. <laughs> <laughs> I finished chapter one in a, a manic spree. I, it was less than 30 days that I did those 20 pages. And then I finished chapter three, the uh, the one about vandalism, Fred Robinson. I did that in a, a little over 30 days in another manic spree. Um, and those two were a year apart. And then I did chapter four, the card game one, and that became very intense and labored because I did a lot of genealogical research and even historical research. And I read a bunch of books about German immigrants and histories of card games and just a lot of stuff that I ended up utterly throwing out that I thought was going to end up in the book but just got too boring and bogged down. And then I started chapter two and I did not finish it because it was dragging on too long. And then I took about a year off so I could fall apart. And then I started chapter five but I realized I couldn't finish it with my current health. So I got some friends to help finish it. Um, my girlfriend, Hazel Nulavant, and my friends, Amy Katab and Stefan Sato. And then I went back and finished chapter two. So it's pretty piecemeal. And that would explain this extreme change in style in chapter two. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I keep hearing all these uh, theories of why the style changes, and I, I guess I don't want to say. <laughs> I like what other people say. <laughs> How does it work um, doing um, this extensively private work with, say, up to three collaborators? 
That is really bizarre. Yeah. And then here I am working on these stories about, you know, someone pissing in my mouth and it's at my girlfriend's house and her parents are walking around reading the pages. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, it's, it's practice for, you know, I mean, hopefully the book will be successful enough that I'll have to be embarrassed about thousands of people reading it. So I got to start now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Do you find like a certain level of trust with folks? I mean, I'm presuming with a girlfriend, you'd have a lot of trust with the other folks. Yeah, I did, you know, the pages I had them work on with me, I kind of put them in order as to how embarrassing they might be to me. So, so they weren't surprised and I wasn't surprised, sort of crept up on it. Hey, here's this page that has somebody getting slapped. Oh, you like that? Oh, here's this other page. (laughs) (laughs) This boy putting a toy in his butt. (laughs) Oh, that's okay. You like that? Okay, I got some more. (laughs) Now, I, uh, I saw something online that Hazel had posted that was a gif of the layers yeah. that you guys went through putting thank, the pages together. Thank comics that she uh, put those up online because I don't understand social media anymore if I ever did. And I also don't have the interest or the physical power to, to deal with it. And she put those up there, and I got a lot of good press before the book came out. And in fact, the last chapter of the book would probably not be in color unless uh, Eric Reynolds had seen those process gifts. <laughs> he was like, you're doing the last book chapter in color? And I was like, yeah, I don't know. That's what I had laying around. <laughs> he, he's still incredulous that I didn't plan for it to be printed in color, but I didn't. Um, now, when did Fenographics come in? as your publisher for the book? About midway through, I think. You know, I I guess if you read 10,000 Things to Do, it happens at the end of that, so that would have been uh, September of 2009. Okay. Yeah. So then, you flash forward. Four years. (laughs) Four years later, (laughs) I finally finished it. They didn't realize, you know, that's the midpoint of the book. Yeah, I never would have finished it without a publishing deal, I'm sure. Mm Mm-hmm. Not in that form. It would have been a mini-comic series. But you can't do those anymore. My, yeah, I can't do them anymore. Absolutely. So maybe it never would. I really I really thought there's 50-50 chance that book would get finished or not. If I hadn't gotten so much help from friends and support, there's no way. There was I just couldn't have done it. Was it during this time, um, finishing off the book, when you moved to New York and were homeless and yeah yeah see (laughs) yeah i had a i had a pretty bad year when i turned 40 i was uh, i lost a real important relationship and uh another one when dylan williams died and i didn't have anywhere to live and i was utterly broke and thirty thousand dollars in debt and i lost my teaching job and all the newspapers that were carrying my strip drop the strip because they couldn't afford it. Um, I think around that time was when the Village Voice put a moratorium on comics to, you know, to save money from the, the death of print and the loss of uh, a strong economy. They decided to just cut comics. <laughs> so no job, no money. And then I got diagnosed with three different diseases and it just kind of went downhill from there, if you can imagine. But that's another book. We'll talk about that one in eight years. 
<laughs> yeah, if I'm still doing the show in eight years, that's a long time. You know you will. Come on. <laughs> it's like Godfather 3. They keep pulling me back in. <laughs> See? <laughs> um, how hard was it to get back into doing the book then? Like, you go through all this shit. And yeah. how do you maintain focus? It really helped me to start working on something else that wasn't important or I didn't think was important. I started filling up this sketchbook because I was traveling a lot because I didn't really have anywhere to be. Um, so that, that's my series called Love, L-O-V-F. Robin Chapman at Paper Rocket Mini Comics has published the first issue of that, which is actually the second chapter of five. This is going to be another five-chapter book, I've decided. Um, but just kind of working freely in a sketchbook um, got me got me back into drawing. Yeah. And I found having that regular practice of drawing made it less intimidating to just start scribbling on the couch tag pages, which I did literally scribble on. That was another way I could access working on them was not only to radically change the style, but to... Uh, just just to do whatever I wanted. I, I mean, I would write my to-do lists on those pages. I would spill coffee on them. I would wipe up dead bugs and just, you know, whatever, put more stuff on top until it looked like a page. There's, like, an unpreciousness to it, I guess. <laughs> yes, unpreciousness. <laughs> like, I'm trying to think, there what's the opposite of precious? <laughs> yes, oh, thank you. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, uh, that, that helped. Um... Having people, another, I like working with other people because then I feel beholden to them. You know, I, I don't really have much respect for myself and what I decide to do. But if I tell someone, hey, let's do this project together, then I, I have to stick to it. Mm -hmm. So, get, you know, asking people to help me on my book and then I'd see them and I'd be like, oh, we, we, we better start that soon, huh? <laughs> <laughs> so unpreciousness and friendship that's what finished the book now the luff new york um the one that robin printed uh you can also that's the one that's on the on the slow wave website now oh yeah my Sorry. dead website that was another thing my website got hacked and uh so i couldn't if you tried to go to my website it just had like a big red note that said this is like an evil website that will mess up your computer and I couldn't find out where the files were that they had hidden on there that uh, were bad. So I just nuked the whole thing. Wow. And then I put up some, you know, random scans from my sketchbook and uh, a plea for someone to give me $5,000. <laughs> <I just, laughs> it's been the same like that for years. I get emails from old slow wave fans and, they, you know, they're very polite. They say, I see you've changed styles. I'm wondering, will you have those old slow waves back up there sometime? <laughs> Do you feel completely disconnected from that work? No, not at all. No, it's, I mean, I, I feel a little nostalgic. Do you think you'll eventually put them back on, or? Some. You know, I can't put the ones up that have been published in books, so that's about two-thirds of it. Okay. The other third I may put up there, but I'm kind of interested in starting some new things and putting them online. Or it's, you know, I think the 
landscape of web comics is continually evolving and it's very hard for me to keep track of it now but is i it, have hmm? yeah no go ahead oh i was just going to say i i've been doing it for so long i feel like i should keep doing it it's interesting cuz you started doing web comics what 1998 or something 95 jesus i think i had a my dad was on Usenet at that point. Yes. <laughs> I that's where I got a lot of my original dream submissions were from uh Alt dot dreams, the news <laughs> group. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> that one and Alt dot Surrealism were my favorites when I was in college. Anyone that thinks fondly of Live Journal, go back another <laughs> ten years. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing that Live Journal has such a a large community still. I think that's cool. Yeah. It's mostly Russians posting porn, but, you know. <laughs> wow. I, <I've coughs> never had an interest in going on LiveJournal till now. <laughs> Russian. That's to be done, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, you're doing a uh, signing um, on the 19th at Floating World. Tomorrow night, yes. Tomorrow night. Um, if you're listening to this on a Wednesday night. Um, <laughs> uh, any yeah. other events you're going to be doing? Uh, I have, um, we're going to do an art show of the original art from Couch Tag and some of the process stuff and notes and whatnot at the Pony Club Gallery, which is not too far from Floating World, uh, but that'll be on January 6th, the open Thursday, or the first, first Thursday, the open studio kind of thing. So I've had one show there before of mostly art, and this one's going to be mostly comics. Not that comics aren't art, but it's sort of a different thing. It's hard to know how to display something that is really meant to be read as a book. Yeah. Um, and it definitely depends on how you include the process stuff. I saw yeah. That. Yeah. Which, you know, I, I don't have... Like all I have are the finished pieces <laughs> for uh, for all those later ones, but I do have a lot of sketches and and things like that. So I don't know. We'll see. We haven't put it all together yet. See how it happens. And then I think I'll be having a reading at the Strand in Manhattan on the thirtieth of January. Nice. It's all very nice spaces to be in. Thanks to my awesome publicity team at Fanographics. <laughs> They <laughs> they've been good at uh, at uh, get, putting me in touch with with a lot of stores. I do signings. You know, Fanographics has has a good good solid name. Um, they don't have the biggest advances, but it's some some prestige. They try their hardest. Oh yes, they do. <laughs> um, now, Coach Tag, you mentioned. Um maybe jokingly working on another book about your more recent um, adventures, for lack of a better term. Um, do you see Couch Tag as really capturing a certain point in time of your life? Uh, no, not really. It's more like a view of... I could see covering the exact same material with a different uh, spin on it. In fact, I'm working on that book, too. It's called Know You Do It, where I plan to go over a lot of these same traumatic events um, 
more literally and more objectively and talk about them to the reader instead of just, you know, showing them through childhood anecdotes. So it it was hard for me not to put really didactic psychological things into couch tag. So whenever I had some some like great ideas, <laughs> I'd put them in a text file to put in a different book that would be, you know, instead of the show don't tell book, this one will be the tell 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 book. One of the things I was thinking about looking at the way you would address or cover or navigate these childhood traumas um, is it almost felt disconnected. Yeah. I I really tried my best to capture the reader's sympathy. And I thought the best way to do that would be to show myself as just some sad little victim. <laughs> And I think that has this sort of distancing effect. Like, I don't know. If I'm, it's hard for me to explain. It's sort of, uh, you know, it's like I'm playing dumb. Yeah. I want the reader to realize, oh, that sucked for him or, oh, that was traumatic for him. I don't want my character in the book, like, being melodramatic and sobbing and, you know, saying, oh, mommy, that was traumatic for me. So, I don't know. It, it, maybe that contributes to the distance yeah i don't know it's interesting i was really just kind of fascinated of how like the weird role time plays on it maybe the the weird what role that time plays oh yeah yeah work sure like when you look back on memories yeah and i yeah. think that maybe that's something is like how do you um accurately um, portray these memories or are you necessarily worried about a complete accuracy as much as um, really getting the idea? Yeah, more the latter. I did fudge a number of things and it was partially to evoke the feeling I needed to evoke that I didn't have five pages to do. So by making a small factual change, I could get the same impact in a few panels. And so I was more conscious of really, really trying to pay attention to the reader rather than, you know, the author when I was writing it. <laughs> <laughs> Just, it's, you know, it's hard. It's like listening. It's like talking to someone and, and trying to hear what they're saying rather than waiting for you to talk next, you know. So I was just trying to think of what would make a satisfying book for someone else and how I could get the reader to hear what I was saying. And the best way to do that is not always for me to just say it the way I want to hear it. One of the chapters I think I really got into the most was the card game chapter. Oh, cool. I thought and... that was the most boring one, Robert. <laughs> <laughs> well, we think differently, Mr. Redclaw. <laughs> That's the one I had to put the clamp down on. I spent two years on that. <laughs> well, it seems to me like it was the most difficult probably for you to put together. It was. As far as, like, I'm it picturing you with, slow. like, these Franks and Toro diagrams. Exactly. Triangles all over the walls. <laughs> <laughs> was there a bit of that? Like, how do you plan out, you know, these different card games and computing it with points or intersecting it with points in your life? Yeah. That chapter is... is a, I'm really begging the, the readers' forgiveness and how 
slack I am with sticking to the conceit. Uh, but, you know, it's surprising how many things will crop up. And I, I wrote down a big list of everything I remembered uh, from my childhood that I thought was worth putting in the book. And I wrote down a big list of things, uh, big list of card games I played and what anecdotes I remembered in relation to those and just kind of pushed the two together. And I ended up dropping a lot of card games we played because I couldn't find a way to sneak in some pun there, you know, some uh, connection. And some of the games we didn't really play that much, and I, I kind of trumped those up because they fit so well, you know. Yeah. All part of it all going together. You still play a lot of card games? I just got finished playing three rounds of Magic with Hazel. I just built this uh, red-green deck that is not very good, but, you know, it's going to get there. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I remember that game. From yes. the comic store. It's had a resurgence, Robin. It's, uh, See, I never played it. I, I'm too old to have ever played it. So I get to have it now. I, I've never actually played it. I just remember people buying heaps yeah. of packs. And... That's what you do. You know what's cool about those magic cards, though, I just got to say, because it really relates to comics, is that when I was a kid, I, I had over 3,000 comics. And that's a lot of boxes. It was about 10 or 11 long boxes. Yeah. And I love those things. I loved bagging them. I made a database so I could put all of the numbers into the database and when I bought it and when I read it, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. But now you have these magic cards and you could have 3,000 magic cards and you could store them in like a lunchbox. <laughs> that's cool. <laughs> I can be just as obsessive about it and they cost just as much, but they're tiny. So... That's the benefit. <laughs> <laughs> it, Maybe it, one day, instead of comics, we'll all just put out cards. <laughs> it, uh, I think DeForge just did a little five trading cards with uh, his ant colony. He book, would. So, yeah. He would. All right. See, I shouldn't even try. These kids. Kids these days. What are you going to do? <laughs> um. Thanks for taking the time to chat with me today, Jesse. Thank you, Robin. Uh -huh. um, I really enjoyed uh, Couch Tag. And a reminder, folks, Jesse will be signing at Floating World in Portland. Um, go down and check it out. It's a fine store to spend some time in. Yes, it is. It's a great store.